So these events really shake the bedrock of our lives. And the strongly held assumptions we have of the world impact our decisions, how we behave, how we plan our lives, and how we view ourselves and our concept of self-worth. We saw this, you know, a really obvious large-scale example that sort of parallels this one in nature is really 9-11. And um, we're seeing it now. I'm Jack Newton, CEO and co-founder of Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal software provider. In each episode of Daily Matters, we'll explore what this new normal means for law firms, how legal professionals can find success while working remotely, and how lawyers can best serve their clients during this unprecedented situation. We're joined today by Natalie Archibald. Natalie is an accomplished executive and leadership coach, is pursuing her doctorate of educational leadership, and is currently serving as interim VP of People here at Clio. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the ways individuals and organizations are being affected on a psychological level by the coronavirus crisis and how people and companies can respond proactively. Natalie, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So, Natalie, first of all, what's on your mind most right now? Well, I mean, I think given um, my you know, interest in human psychology and, and how people think and really just in... Um, human resiliency. I think for me, what I'm most interested in is the psychological impact that COVID-19 is having, not only as us, on us as individuals, but on our collective experience as a culture and how that's manifesting across certain industries. So it's something I've been thinking a lot about and um, sort of referencing some of my past uh, training and counseling psych to think about, you know, how I can uh, reframe uh, what's going on in the world uh, for myself and for also the teams I support at Clio. That's a great segue into my next question, Natalie, which is uh, just to tell us a little bit more about your background. Tell us about the path that that led you to to Clio. You joined us just uh, a couple of months ago, so you're relatively new in the the seat as interim VP of People. But you had a you know fascinating career leading up to this this new role at Clio. Tell us about that path, and maybe tell us a little bit more about what the the VP of People at Clio does. Sure. Um, so, it, you know, my career trajectory has been one that sort of spanned across sectors. So um, out of uh, my undergraduate studies uh, in Ontario, I spent some time working in the nonprofit sector. Um, one of uh, the most impactful experiences I've ever had was uh, through volunteer work. And I worked uh, in, you know, federal prisons across Canada, um, mostly in a literacy and restorative justice capacity, where I was working one-on-one -on -one with inmates, helping um, you know, direct, uh, direct people out of um, traditional justice kind of processes and more into restorative processes, but also just in terms of some basic literacy uh, provision through some of the work I did um, in my volunteer days. And out of that, you know, I always thought I would become a lawyer and discovered that the one-on-one -on -one connection I was able to have through conversation was something that really lit me up. So I moved out to BC and uh, completed my master's in counseling psychology and worked in clinical practice in um, university counseling centers, as well as in private practice, um, just in a more clinical setting with people that were struggling with a variety of mental health issues and concerns, um, you know, crisis kind of settings. Um, and then from there really got fascinated um, by organizational development and um, the opportunity, I think, for me to apply what I, loved about clinical practice and one-on-one -on -one counseling at uh, an organizational level. So I began um, executive coaching 
um, in a couple of retail organizations and then went on to uh, take on, you know, progressively um, different leadership positions uh, in an HR function and in the people and culture kind of world. Um, so after spending some time at um, a, a big retailer here in Vancouver as the head of learning and development, I landed at Clio. And I'm so happy I did. And um, what I do here is really help uh, support our uh, people, you know, not only our uh, internal people teams, but all employees at Clio um, live our values and uh, live our mandates um, specifically around, you know, thriving as Team Clio um, and really focusing on living a learning mindset. Um, and I would even say um, part of, you know, my personal passion is in making sure that all Cleons are um, really focused on their mental health and well-being and that they're coming to work every day feeling supported, happy, fulfilled, engaged. Um, and I think that's what uh, I love the most about this opportunity. So Natalie, one of the things you've, you've talked about internally and, and one of the reasons I thought it'd be great to, to have you on during Mental Health Week to, to speak to is this, this concept you've shared called the loss of our assumptive world and that, that being a result of the, the trauma we're feeling from the, the COVID-19 crisis. Can you walk us through what this, this term around losing our assumptive world means and and, and how it's translating to impacts on, on people? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I heard this concept first um, a number of years ago now when I was completing some additional training in grief counseling. And really when you think about it, um, what we as a culture are experiencing right now is the sense of collective grief. Like everything as we knew it um, is lost and grief is not just you know defined by um, you know, a, a death or like a physical loss, but just a loss in general of anything that is meaningful to uh, a person. And for us, that includes, you know, the way we did business, the way we lived our lives, our ability to socialize, our ability to engage in the world um, in the ways that we previously did. And um, there was an excellent HBR article on this collective grief through COVID. And I was reminded of this concept, which is essentially this psychological principle that describes um, the experience of a traumatic change or event and how that can change how we as a culture or as an individual view ourselves in the world. So these events really shake the bedrock of our lives and the strongly held assumptions we have of the world impact our decisions, how we behave, how we plan our lives and how we view ourselves and our concept of self-worth. So um, we saw this, you know, a really obvious large scale example that sort of parallels this one in nature is really 9-11 and um, we're seeing it now. And so uh, it's really interesting to see um, how we as a culture, when we go through this or experience this loss of our assumptive world or the assumptions that we rely on in order to engage in our lives in a meaningful way, how do we bounce back from that and how do we um, how do we put one foot in front of the other and redefine everything that uh, we we previously relied on as a truth that that is no longer there? Yeah, I, I think it's a, a really interesting perspective on the emotions we're feeling and and the HBR article you you referenced, uh, excellent article mm -hmm. uh, titled "That Discomfort You're Feeling Is Grief." Uh, that I, I, I think so accurately puts its finger on this this feeling that that we've 
maybe not been able to exactly, you know, pin down, but it is, it is really grief. You know, where he talks about the, the Kubler-Ross model for, for grieving and the fact that we're actually working our way through that amidst this, this pandemic and, and almost mourning the things that we've, we've lost. And it's, it's the big things and it's the little things, right? There's, there's just a, a, a ton of thousands of little micro experiences that we're, we've lost on a daily basis. And some of the big things that people are grieving, like maybe the wedding that they hoped they would have or uh, the vacation to Hawaii that they, they'd spent months planning that's now all up in the air, for example. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you know, how are you seeing this show up, you know, at an organizational level or, or an individual level? How does this translate to, you know, impacts to, to individuals that, that might be observable? And, and how do you know it might be an opportunity to intervene if somebody's really struggling? It's, it's so interesting. Um, you know, you talk about the Kubler-Ross model and which is like more commonly known as the stages of grief and um, what, you know, more recent research has shown is that that model um, is not necessarily defined by stages in terms of sequence. So you don't move on to the next stage and then never revisit the one prior. It's more fluid than that. Right. What we end up seeing when we understand grief in that way is um, sort of like the scatteredness of human nature. So one day we feel good and we feel like we're showing up on top of things. And then the next day we feel like, you know, it's that one step forward, two steps back kind of thing. Right. And, um, so how that manifests at the individual level um, is really in a heightened sense of anxiety. And this is a, a common experience after a trauma, um, no matter how big or small, is the sense of hypervigilance, which is that you're constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop. So during times of uncertainty, we feel um, completely unprepared or blindsided. And so what our bodies do is puts us in this state of constant alert in order to not be blindsided again. But how this shows up actually hinders us rather than helps us. So we see a lot of people experience far, you know, more heightened experiences of anxiety, um, people with pre-existent um, conditions such as like, you know, depression or generalized anxiety disorder, those things we're seeing like exacerbated. Um, but we're also seeing it show up um, culturally and on an industry level um, in ways that are similar to how they show up on an individual basis. Um, so we're seeing, you know, inconsistency in practices at the organizational level because we're scattered. We don't know whether we're coming or going. We're dealing with new information. Every right. day. Um, you know, information is coming out that renders a decision we made yesterday irrelevant. And so we're having to pivot and kind of sprint in a hundred different directions. Um, you know, also at a cultural level, we're seeing an inability to rely on some of the typical ways um, we show up in the world in terms of our cultural rituals like babies are still being born and people are still dying of, you know, non-COVID related deaths, but we can't ritualize, like celebrate or show up in the ways we want to um, when these big kind of cultural experiences happen. And so um, we're seeing people feel, I think, naturally um, a little bit more reserved, um, a little bit less connected, um, you know, more disconnected, less engaged. Um, and that sort of parallels, um, you know, at, at the organizational level as well. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned, you know, death and and how the, even the the process of grieving is is something that's been fundamentally transformed by 
by this crisis. And, and, and given, you know, this perspective that you're offering, which is one that, you know, we're collectively suffering through this enormous trauma and, and, and grieving in some way for all the things we've, we've lost. What, what advice do you have for organizational leaders? These might be our listeners that are our bar leaders or maybe law firm leaders uh, or just anyone who's running a team that might be impacted or likely is impacted in some way at a psychological level by COVID-19. What is some of your advice for uh, how to support your staff, how to lead them through this, uh, this period of transition and, and, and provide, you know, hopefully some kind of bedrock in, in a, a time of enormous uncertainty? It's a great question. I have, um, you know, there's no, there's no easy um, strategies here that I think are going to make the situation um, do a 180 for people. But I think that there are some really key foundational things that when you focus on them and do them well, it's really felt, it's really appreciated, and it makes a huge qualitative impact on, on people's experiences. So I've got a couple of um, kind of um, more emotional or relational kind of tips and then um, sort of one more practical one, which is really as a leader, um, thinking about things through the lens of providing as much stability as you can during this time. So controlling the controllable on behalf of your team and your organization. So whether that is through messaging, whether that is through, um, you know, redirecting people towards policies and practices that have not changed, that are supportive and in support of employees' experiences, um, really being clear about, um, about those things so that people can access the support they need. And I think as well, in terms of a, like a thought leadership perspective, providing stability through what you're focusing on in the business right now. So what are the ways that you need to pivot to ensure business continuity? Because ultimately coming to work and having a job is one of the ultimate forms of stability we can offer our team members right now. So, um, you know, I know in the legal industry um, and what we're passionate about at Clio is helping people make that um, move to the cloud and to move to a more distributed, um, technologically supported work environment. To me, that is a huge stabilizing gift that, uh, people in the legal industry can provide to their teams and uh, to lawyers that they work with. So that's sort of that st- stability piece mm-hmm. is huge. And then I think from a more um, interpersonal kind of perspective, I think that now is the time to be human and now is the time to be vulnerable. And those two things are, you know, in my opinion, very interrelated. So if you're a leader that typically isn't comfortable with, you know, self-disclosure or uh, being vulnerable or exhibiting what you might perceive as like a weakness or something that is personal. Now is the time when um, being more vocal about that and exhibiting that kind of leadership is going to go a long way with your team. Um, Because right now what people need is uh, normalization. So to know that what they're experiencing at home with like kids running around the background on Zoom calls and, you know, not feeling like you have Um, clearly defined compartments in your life and how you might be struggling with this is so important to hear. And I really want to underscore the emphasis on being human in this time is, um, is absolutely immeasurable in terms of what it can offer employees. And you're really not doing anything. It doesn't cost you anything to do that and to show up that way. This this may be moving outside of our comfort zone in in that, 
being human is maybe being more vulnerable than we're we're used to being. And I I, I think one of the the points that Gina Cho, who was on the show earlier in the week, shared was this idea that we need to help destigmatize mental health issues and destigmatize even the fact that we might be struggling in this time and share out that hey, like we're having a tough day or a tough week or uh, you know, like you said, be be real, be human about what's going on with you, and that can really help people feel like it's normal, which it which it is. Yeah, and you know, at Clio, we have um, what we call a human and high performing culture, and for us, those things are not mutually exclusive, right? Like quite the contrary. That in order to be high performing, you need to be successful in the human category, and so we talk all the time about building um, your toolbox up proactively. So not waiting until you've hit the point of crisis or burnout to, you know, enlist some professional support and um, book a counseling appointment or to uh, really amp up your self-care or to do whatever it is that you need to do to be an optimal version of yourself. Because ultimately you don't move into a place of high performance um, without uh, visiting that renewal zone um, as we call it in terms of like, you know, our energy management. Right. Um, talk a little bit about, about that, that renewal zone. So that we talk about this performance matrix and it's maybe something we're thinking about again in, in a, uh, amidst a, a pandemic where we're running a bit of a, a marathon and a great you know, metaphor I, I, I heard for this the other day is you, know, you need to think about your managing your energy like you're in a marathon. You're not, you're not in a sprint and everyone needs to be in that mindset. But what, what makes COVID-19 you know, especially challenging is the fact that you're, you're not in a marathon of a dis- defined distance. You're actually in a marathon that we don't know how long it's going to last. And it's likely going to be a series of months or, or maybe even a year plus before things start returning to some sense of, of normalcy. So, so talk a little bit about how you, how people should think about managing their, uh, their mental well-being and, and manage their energy if we're in this, this kind of openly defined open length marathon. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think the analogy of the marathon is perfect, right? Because you wouldn't train for a marathon in the same way that you would train for a sprint race. So you have to think about something that is showing up in your life where there's no clear end in sight um, as that marathon and how you would approach it would be different, right? So you would want to pace yourself. You would want to um, visit kind of renewal or like, you know, stop at all the water stations and make sure that you're taking that shot of Gatorade or, you know, that you're giving yourself the, the, um, like electrolyte, um, that you need every now and then, um, in order to sustain the long run. And I think it's similar with our mental health during this time. I think that, um, you know, if we think about our energy management, um, as sort of a quadrant, um, with an X, Y axis in the top right corner of the quadrant is where we see high performance. And that's the performance zone directly below that is the renewal zone. If we look at the far left side of the quadrant on the top, that's where we have the survival zone. So that's when you're operating at like super high energy and maybe at times high performance, but for a short period of time, because then Mm -hmm. you burn out. And so the the quadrant right below it on, on the bottom left is the burnout zone. And so really the only way to make that shift from survival zone to performance zone is through the renewal zone. Mm -hmm. And um, that looks different for everyone. And one thing I think is a really important piece of self-awareness 
for us to go through as a um, as a society is really redefining what self-care and renewal looks like because our previous uh, defaults aren't as readily available. So it's not as easy to just go to a workout class. It's not as easy to go for dinner with friends and, you know, get that social connection. Um, and some of the things we relied on in the same ways just don't work. So being really intentional about how you define self-care um, and self-care has to be intentional and it has to be restorative. It can't be something that you, you do for survival, right? Because ultimately it'll just lead to burnout if you don't do it properly. And tell us a little bit about what renewal looks like in the COVID-19 world. So when, when you, you talk, you're, you're right, like we lost so many outlets for what my, our renewal practice may have been, whether it's group yoga or, you know, the just exercise, so many forms of, of like spin class and other forms of exercise that, that so many people depended on or have been yanked out from under them. Uh, what's renewal look like in the, the COVID-19 era? So, you know, I think it's individual. Um, so I, I hesitate to say like, this is the, you know, it's not clickbait here. Like the one thing you can do that, is, right, that right. Um, prevent you from burnout during COVID-19. I think you have to decide that for yourself, but I can share an observation, which is that um, pre-COVID and obviously for the last um, like decade or so, we've been touting the benefits of mindfulness and um, mindful practices. Um, meditation as a practice has gained increasing popularity through apps and whatnot. Um, and I think what I really want to put out as like an invitation is that if you're the type of person who a feels like they don't have time to sit down and do a 20 minute meditation, um, or where your comfort level with a formal meditation might not be there. Like you, you, there's just a mental block that you have. I'd invite you to think about mindful moments. And what I'm really sort of observing for people is that in the absence of daily rituals, like, you know, driving to work every day and you listen to your podcast or, you know, you wake up and, you know, if you've got kids, like the kids are at school and you have a cup of coffee and you have that moment to yourself to sort of reset, those are mindful moments and those don't exist in the same way. But how can you build in those moments into your life now, you know, in this COVID world? So it doesn't have to be a 20 minute meditation or, you know, sitting there in silence, drinking your coffee, but it could be things like, when you're brushing your teeth or you're washing your hands, um, you know, playing some sort of helpful thinking pattern in your head or being mindful of your feet on the ground and the feeling of the soap going through your hands, those kind of physical grounding exercises, um, as well as, you know, um, a, you know, a deep breathing exercise while you're doing something that is ritualistic um, is incredibly restorative for our brains uh, from a neuroscience perspective. And they can give us, if we practice them, um, consistently, the type of mental um, breaks we need and give us that emotional buffer from the noise that is surrounding us right now um, amidst COVID. And Natalie, maybe shifting to your, your role as VP people at, at Clio and, and some of the initiatives you got underway, and this, this may be underscoring some aspects of what you've talked about over the course of the, the episode mm -hmm. thus far. Uh, but can you just outline some of the things you're doing at an organizational level to to help folks navigate the the crisis and maybe some of the things you're encouraging leaders in the organization to do? Yeah, I mean, what's really interesting about my position at 
COVID, as you know, Jack, was that my first day at the company was the first day of work from home. So right. I am uh, in, you know, in all <laughs> senses of the word, um, ahead of people that's actually never met a person at Clio. Right. Um, so, you know, in person. So um, the irony of that is not lost on me and something I've worked really hard and intentionally to establish in my short time here is just presence, accessibility, um, transparency. And for me, that's what um, providing stability looks like is being a leader that is accessible, that is communicating, um, you know, well, often, frequently, openly with people and, um, and that I'm engaging in conversations uh, in ways that are meaningful. So I'm talking about mental health. I'm, I'm going there from that vulnerability perspective um, to demonstrate uh an invitation really for our team members to show up that way themselves and to um, be more vocal and connect um, in those areas of their lives. Um, but in terms of some of the things that we're doing as an organization, um, I've really been so impressed and proud of how our executive team is communicating with our organization. I think we're We've always been a pretty transparent team, um, but I think now than ever, we're really over-indexing on communication to make sure that people feel like they're in the loop um, and that there is very little room for assumption and uh, ambiguity in terms of um, what our priorities are right now and what we're working on and what we care about. So that's been one thing. Um, I think the other thing we've been doing a really great job at is really providing connection points uh, with our team members. So whether that's through virtual events, um, you know, we started a daily variety show, a video variety show for all of our um, team members to tune into, to be able to give them that sense of starting their day on a positive light note. And it helps provide that stability of like a morning ritual that other right. used to provide. Um, you know, I think um, we're also putting a lot of uh, training resources together in a quite scrappy manner on how to equip managers with the skill sets to have difficult conversations with their team members, help provide them with accommodations um, to some of the things that they need support on uh, right now that's impacting um, their ability to show up at work in the ways they would like. Um, and we're being quite intentional about uh, how we're looking at flexibility and performance in this space um, and really leaving room for individuals to be in conversation about that with their leaders and to feel supported in having those conversations rather than fearful of having those conversations. Right. And on an individual level, you've talked a little bit about what leaders can do on an individual level. Do you have some, some advice for, for individuals in terms of, again, just managing their, their mental well-being and managing their energy. You've underscored, I think, a few great ideas thus far. Is there anything, you'd like, anything else you'd like to, to list off uh, for, for individuals as action items? Yeah, I think, you know, those mindful moments is a huge thing. Um, but I think, you know, when I think about the traps that high-functioning people fall into, a lot of it has to do with our own thinking patterns and um, the ways that we might engage in like unhelpful, um, you know, overly negative or very black and white thinking patterns um, that actually serve us in a lot of ways because they push us to do more to sort of like counter that inner critic we have. But in times like this, I think it's actually really important to challenge the negative thinking patterns that we have and that we notice 
And the first step is just that noticing what's going on in our own brains and how, um, you know, I use, I call it the CNN crawl. It's like the crawl, the news crawl that you have going on in the back of your head that kind of impacts your overall state of well-being. Um, And sometimes that can actually influence our perception of reality and, um, and overly skew it to the negative. And so being conscious of that, working to, to change that, um, and, and replace it with thinking that is a little bit more, um, I don't want to say positive, but a little bit more in line with self-compassion that we're all doing the best we can right now, that we trust ourselves to evaluate things the way we need to, to make good decisions and that, uh, it's okay to be human. And that really like, we're all going through this right now. Um, we're in it together. And that sounds like maybe overly sugary from my counseling perspective, but I think um, it's helpful and it's what we need to remind ourselves of right now. Yeah, well, that's uh, great advice. And uh, I think on that very note of thinking about the, the positives, I thought it'd be you know, nice to, to end the podcast on, on a bright note. Uh, I'm curious, what, what are you most excited about? Uh, is there anything that gives you a sense of optimism and, and hope during this time? You know, I've spent a lot of time talking about this with, with my husband. Um, I tend to be more extroverted. And for me, this has been more of a 180. He's much more of like a homebody um, kind of introverted personality style. And so he jokes around that he's been training for this his whole life. So this isn't really, like, <laughs> been that disruptive for him. Um, but I, I've shared with him last night, we went for a walk together and I said, I feel like so much good has come out of this experience. And that's what I'm choosing to focus on right now. And, uh, for me, that's been, um, a real awareness of how that busy culture that we live in, of feeling like we need to be out of the house doing things, um, and that we define our worth based on how um, externally kind of available we are in the world. Um, I've really turned that on its head. Um, so I, I've really valued the, the connection times I've had with my kids, uh, where I've been less digitally distracted, less pulled into feeling like I need to, um, you know, be out of the house to do something. Um, the other thing is, uh, both of our families are not from Vancouver and we live in Vancouver. And so in order to visit our families, we have to get on a plane or do a five hour drive. And um, we are on planes or, you know, traveling at least once a month. And to not have to do that has been like a huge sigh of relief. And it's really helped us focus on our family of origin and what we um, want to really prioritize and how we engage with each other. Um, so for me, like, I've, I've really noticed that the quantity of interactions I've had with other people have gone down, but the quality has really gone up. And that's something I want to maintain moving forward. And, and I just encourage uh, people to think about in their own lives, um, what has improved and, and what they've noticed and, and choose to intentionally focus on that. That's a, a great note to end on. Thanks so much for joining us today, Natalie. It's been a, a hugely insightful conversation and uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters today, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit clio.com. 